proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have pastor and author Dr. Richard Phillips. Dr. Phillips, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. We are excited to have you on. This has been uh, a work in process for some time and just uh, thrilled that we get the opportunity to discuss uh, a few things with you, church planting and uh, uh, theology, as well as your, uh, your book, The Masculine Mandate, you wrote some time back. Um, but would you mind giving my listeners maybe just a, uh, a quick bio of, of who you are and uh, what you've been up to in the sense of your theological journey and, and Reformed theology? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I am... Uh I'm Rick Phillips. I am 55 years old. Amazing how quickly that happens. Um, I was raised in an Army family, and we were uh, Army Protestants, which meant when we weren't living on Army base, we were Presbyterian. But we were socially conservative-ish, political, non-evangelical Protestantism. Virtue, patriotism, self-glory, and power. That was our religion. And I was a military officer. My, my grandfather was a tank officer. My father was a tank officer. I was a tank officer. And um, through my 20s, I, uh, I didn't really attend church because I was deployed and I wasn't a Christian. And this consternated my parents who thought I should be attending church because, as they uh, lovingly said to me, you know, when you're a general, you'll be expected to be a religious man. It was all part of being well-rounded. So I was actually in graduate school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at age 30. Uh, The Army had uh, assigned me to be a professor uh, at West Point, and I was at the University of Pennsylvania doing master's work. And my mother said, you know, son, um, you're not deployed right now. You're not commanding troops. You're in grad school. Why don't you, you know, find a church? By the way, you might meet a girl there. You know, I've been deployed my whole 20s. I didn't get married on the, you know, uh, among my armored cavalry troops. And so I said, yeah, sure, Mom. And so I went. It's kind of a long story, but I, I ended up uh, going into 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I walked in. Actually, the, the longer version is sort of that I met a woman the day I moved into my apartment. And I carried some, she was moving out. I carried some boxes for her. And she tried to witness to me. And I clearly was not interested in being witnessed to. And so she just said, look, if you're ever looking for a good church, you should go to 10th Presbyterian Church at 17th and Spruce Street, downtown Philly. And I'm like, yeah, 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 sure. Well, two months later, I remembered that, and I went there, and it was about five blocks from my apartment, and there, uh, James Montgomery Boyce was preaching the Word of God, and I'll never forget just the overall experience of walking in as a secular humanist, uh, although I had a lot of existential struggles with my life. I was kind of lonely, struggling with a sense of purpose, like so many people are. And I walk in, and there he is preaching the Word of God. He's not telling stories about his wife and kids. He's not weeping. 
because of the trials of his life. He's not putting on a dog and pony show. He's preaching the word of God with clarity and power. And the sermon that night, it was an evening service. The sermon was uh, Hosea chapter 3. And uh, if you know the passage, I was Gomer. And I went home that night after that sermon, got on my knees on the floor of my apartment, and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Praise and Jesus. I started, and I went to church the next week. And the funny thing was, uh, it was a big deal. I knew I'd been born again. He'd explained that. I, um, I was excited to be going to church as a Christian. And the sermon, he was preaching Romans. It was in his famous Romans series. This was 1990. And um, the text was Romans 9. It was not merely the doctrine of predestination he was preaching. It was the doctrine of reprobation. In fact, the sermon title was Double or Nothing. And uh, I was confronted with Calvinism in my first service, and I was horrified. But he kept pointing to the text. And so I went what the Bible said, and I kept coming back. And over that 18 months of my graduate school time, my worldview, my life was completely, as Paul said in Acts 17, or it was said of them, they, the Bible turned my world upside down. So I went back to the Army uh, after two years at West Point, at, 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 at the Wharton School, met my wife at church. We were engaged when I left, um, started teaching at West Point, and got involved in campus evangelism. And through that, it just kind of took on a life of its own. I started getting asked to preach. I started getting asked to write things. And we very reluctantly, but we came to the conclusion that I was called to leave my Army career and, and become a preacher. Uh, if you'd have told me that the night I was converted, I would have renounced the faith. <laughs> You're going to become a minister. Oh, my word. So I went to Westminster Seminary at age 35 and uh, was on the pastoral staff at 10th Pres. I was ordained. I was the evening preacher at the church I was converted in. Became very close to Jim Boyce. Uh, I worked with him in the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And so uh, I um, began traveling with him and was involved in the conferences and and all of that work, he and I became very close. And uh, 2000, he died. Um, my uh, close friend, Philip Riken was also there. Phil became the senior minister. I became the minister of preaching. What a, I actually held that job, minister of preaching at 10th Presbyterian Church. And I left it. That's the best job I ever had. <laughs> um, but I felt convicted to go out. And you know, we kind of had two of us, two expository preachers at 10th. Other churches had none. So I went to a church in South Florida. It was very much a reforming work. Uh, really, the elders wanted to reform the church, brought me in. Uh, a lot of the congregation didn't like that kind of thing happens, but the Lord blessed it. And I ended up, uh, in, in nine years ago, I ended up coming to Greenville, South Carolina, which has been a really good fit for me. I, for a lot of reasons, my wife and I concluded that South Florida, where I was pastoring, was really not a great fit for me. Um, and uh, South Carolina is a great fit for me. And uh, we've, we've been here, and you know, through Dr. Boyce, I started writing books, and uh, Phil Reichen and I uh, began the Reformed Expository Commentary Series, which is continuing today. It's a great joy. I'm involved in the, when Dr. Boyce, he had the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, and when he died, he asked me to take that over. I still lead. You and I met at the PCRT in Grand Rapids. So I'm busy in the Lord. I've got five kids. Uh, my oldest daughter just finished her freshman year in college. It was a great year for her. My oldest son, in fact, Monday and Tuesday this week was freshman orientation at Clemson University, and I had really a wonderful two days with my oldest son. He and I are particularly close, and he's leaving me. So somebody said to me, are you worried about Matthew? No, he's going to do great. I'm worried about me. <laughs> uh, but I have another wonderful son. He's a, he'll be a junior in high school, and so he and I will uh, you know, be together more. And uh, 
we have five children, uh, 20 to 12. Uh, I got married at 32. So I got my first child at 36. So I'll be 60 some 61 when my oldest youngest goes to college. Wow. That, yeah, it keeps me young. So I'm busy, busy, busy writing books, preaching, pastoring at church. Um, uh, doing some, I do conference works. I travel, try to go to the missions field once a year and preach and teach. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, I am the assistant defensive coordinator of the Greenville Hurricanes homeschool football team. <laughs> I'm the linebackers coach, and we're going to have a good defense this year. You, you are, you are so busy. It is, it's, it's, it's encouraging and also threatening at the same time. Uh, uh, it's just right. to be used of God in so many ways. Um, I have, I have really been blessed um, just by the time we got to share at, at the conference there uh, in Grand Rapids. Um, I want to just uh, probe a little deeper into Dr. Boyce and, and the history there. He, um, I know for, for many uh, people um, in uh, my generation, we kind of caught the, the, the coattails of Dr. Boyce before he passed away, but the generation that's younger than me um, I'd say some of our millennials may not even have any knowledge of who he is and what he stood for, but he was he was so important to the church in his writing, his defense of historic Christianity in the face of liberalism. There's just so much that, that he, he did to um, benefit the church. Could you help us kind of flesh out who he was maybe a little bit deeper? Yeah, Jim Boyce and I are both products of the same church planning project. Let me encourage church planners. In 1829, Ashbel Green who was the pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. His, he was a boyhood pastor of Charles Hodge. By that time, he was president of Princeton Seminary. He was concerned about the new divinity struggle in Philadelphia. And so he sent his number one protege, Henry Augustus Boardman, at age 29, to plant 10th Presbyterian Church. It was the you know, 8, 9, 10. And 10th was planted in the heart of the city. Actually, it was the suburbs then. Now it's downtown. Uh, to represent old-school Presbyterian Calvinistic evangelical theology. And uh, over many years, uh, the church had its ups and downs. It mainly was up. It was a very important church, remains an important church in Philadelphia. And Donald Gray Barnhouse goes there in 1927. The church had not drifted theologically, but it wasn't thriving when he got there. He was young, too. He was 27, I think. He has his great ministry of the Word of God there. Well, a, a young couple is in medical school in Philadelphia. And they, uh, some friends bring them to church, and the, they sit under the, actually, C. Everett Coop, who is the med school, one of the professors, invites and prompts them to go to 10th Pres. And there, first, his mother, Jean, is converted to Christ, and then his father. Uh, one day, they're walking behind the church with their little baby boy, Jimmy Boyce, and Donald Gray Barnhouse greets them. And Barnhouse, this is a true story. I have this, I, I know this is true. Barnhouse picks up the baby and says, you know, the, the four famous ministers of this church have all had last names that began with B. I am going to pray that this baby will be the fifth. That is a true story, Aaron. <laughs> wow. And he holds up baby James Montgomery Boyce. And so his parents become big supporters of Barnhouse's, Barnhouse's ministry. His father becomes a physician in Pittsburgh area, McKeesport. And every year when Barnhouse, Barnhouse was almost never at 10th, really, it's crazy. He was always on the road. And he would spend, I think, two weeks doing rallies in Pittsburgh, and he would stay with the Boyces. So Barnhouse was this huge influence on young Jim Boyce's uh, life. In fact, Barnhouse, they're at the dinner table, and Barnhouse is telling about uh, 
Stony Brook Christian School on Long Island, how great it is. And he says, Jimmy, the voice was 12. Jimmy, would you like to go there? Well, yes, sir. Barnhouse, this is Barnhouse. Picks up the phone, calls the headmaster and says, put him on a train. He'll be enrolled Monday. Doesn't even ask the parents if they want to do it. Uh, it was said of Barnhouse, I wish that I was as certain of one thing as he is about everything. So Barnhouse, so Boyce is very, so he's a dispensational Calvinist now. And he's this, he goes to Harvard University. He's this brilliant guy, he gets a literature degree at Harvard. Um, and he goes to Princeton because Barnhouse told him to. Barnhouse and Machen didn't get along. Hmm. Uh, Barnhouse was in the uh, fundamentalist movement. Machen was not. And so Westminster Seminary, founded in 1929, down the street from 10th, had no relationship to, with 10th, really until Phil Riken and I graduated in the 90s. Wow. Uh, there were things before that, but not much. And so he doesn't go to Westminster. He goes to Princeton. Well, he goes to Princeton. He spends the whole time arguing with his liberal theologians. And by his own account, he becomes an expert in the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, because that's, they're just constantly trashing it. And honestly, he said, really, he studied all the Westminster professors. It was E.J. Young and Machen, those guys. Goes off to Basel, gets a Ph.D. in New Testament, comes back, and Carl, he's in his 20s, Carl Henry snatches him up and makes him an editor at the then Christianity Today, very different from it today, uh, in Washington, D.C. I had a big influence on Boyce. He greatly admired uh, Carl Henry. I think a lot of his very strong personal disciplines came from the tutelage of of Henry. Boyce was devoted in his correspondence. If you wrote him, he wrote you back. He got all that from Carl Henry. And then, you know, 10th Prez is now, Barnhouse has died in 1960. They had a guy named Mariano de Gange, who was a really good guy, but he, the PCUSA was falling apart, and the church wanted to leave the PCU. No, he wanted to leave the PCUSA. The church wasn't ready to do so. So de Gange left. And they have a search committee, and they go like two, three years. And finally, uh, I think it was C.F.R. Coop. Yeah, he told me this. He goes, what about Jimmy Boyce? He's, and so they got Boyce. He came down. He comes to 10th in 1968. There's 300 members. There's no money. The church is, the building's a little dilapidated. And he begins preaching the word of God. That's what he does. Begins his expository preaching ministry. And he uh, and begins publishing his books. And, and he gets involved, and he gets involved because he had the Carl Henry connection. He gets involved in the ICBI. He's asked to chair that because he's clearly this very bright, really strong, reformed guy. And so the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in the early 70s really propels him in his early 30s to into the circle of the leaders of reformed evangelicalism, J.I. Packer, John Gershner, Carl, Roger Nicole, that whole crowd. He meets R.C. Sproul. They begin their lifelong friendship there. 1974, and he's, he's also doing the Bible Study Hour radio ministry. He inherits Barnhouse's radio ministry. They'd still been running Barnhouse that whole time. And so they finally put Boyce on the air. And that was, you know, this is like 1969. That was the time to go into radio, right? Right. You know, and so they steadily grow that radio ministry. Family Radio picks him up before Harold Camping lost his mind. <laughs> and uh, they, he's on all over the country now. So he's on the radio doing expository preaching. He's writing his commentaries. In 1974, he founds what was really the first of the modern Reformed conferences, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, which I chair now, um, which has had a colossal impact over 40-some years. I can't tell you how many Reformed leaders have told me they came to the Reformed faith 
either by attending or listening to the audio products of the PCRT. Albert Moeller told me that. Many people have told me that. And so we really have the long partnership then with, with Ligonier and, and Boyce's ministry, RC and Boyce, and they do a lot of things together. They're fighting together. So Boyce is just doing that, uh, growing the church. Guys like me walk in and I'm saved. Uh, in 1994, however, uh, two things happened. One was uh, David Wells published his book, No Place for Truth, which really was a touchstone among that generation saying, we need to do something more than what we've been doing. Uh, the evan evangelicalism is going wrong. You got to remember, you know, back in 1976, Time Magazine, the year of the evangelical, and evangelicalism was coming out of the cultural backwaters of fundamentalism and was had kind of tweaked itself to be more populist and was now starting to grow. And they realized in the 90s what has happened. Uh, as David Wells has often put it, basically the evangelical abandonment of biblical Christianity out of a desire for, you know, cultural success. And so they formed a group called the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in response to that. And Boyce was the president, Michael Horton, of Christians United for Reformation Cure, Modern Ref, Whitehorse Inn. He was the vice president, and they had this whole group of guys. And I, I actually was a, was a seminary student at 10th at the time, and Boyce asked, I was actually CEO of the Alliance, uh, during those days, and wow. I would fly around with them. So literally, I'm still in seminary. I was present in 1997 for the the big meeting where our guys were combating the evangelicals and Catholics together movement. And I arranged a conference call with Charles Colson and Timothy George and John Woodhouse, all the evangelicals trying to cooperate with the Catholics. And on our side was R.C. Sproul, Michael Horton, Jim Boyce. Robert Godfrey, uh, Alistair Begg, and me. And that was a great, I probably shouldn't give you the private details, but it was, it was, it was something. <laughs> Let me just say, it was a memorable RC moment. My, the highlight of it was, one of the guys on their side said, guys, we've had a great achievement. We've gotten the Catholics to agree that salvation is by grace. <laughs> RC <laughs> says, you idiots, they've always <laughs> believed it was by grace. They don't, <laughs> I'm, they're going, oh man. I actually am sitting here while this is going on. Wow. And, uh, you know, and Boyce was just a great Christian man. And uh, it, he, he had the rare combination of greatness and goodness. He was a wonderful man. He was wonderful to my wife and me. He and I were very close. You know, I, I ate breakfast and lunch and dinner with him on the road. You get to know a guy when you're sleeping in airports together. And uh, uh, But, you know, as what he would say is what is true. It was an expose of the power of the Word of God. Everything he did was of the Word. He preached the word. He taught the word. He broadcast the word. We had conferences. You go to the PCRT, it's about the word. And, uh, you know, in 1974, when he started the PCRT, it was the first. It, here we have, in 1974, a conference to study Reformed theology. Well, look, nine out of ten evangelicals didn't even heard of that. Hmm. And the Philadelphia Inquirer interviewed him and said, what, what are you doing? And Boyce says... Um, you know, in the, in the history of the church, uh, when you have God's sovereign work of revivals, it is always accompanied by the preaching of the great biblical themes that are known as Calvinism. And so we are glorifying God, and we are serving our generation by raising high the banner of sovereign grace. And God is going to use this in ways that you will not expect. 
That's the conviction we need today. That's the conviction that church planners need. That God is going to watch over his word, as he says in Jeremiah. I am watching over my word to see that it is fulfilled. And uh, we, we find ourselves so often, many of your church planner hearers and, and friends are in situations that are very analogous to uh, Ezekiel 37. Poor Ezekiel, he's got his first church plant, the first Presbyterian church of the Valley of Dry Bones. You, know, you think your congregation's dead, his was decomposed. Just scattered bones, bleached in the sun, and God says, preach the word. He begins preaching the word, and their life comes upon them, and the, the bones start moving, and the sinews come upon them, and they stand up as a mighty army in the Lord. Look, that is, uh, that's our philosophy of ministry. <laughs> and if we will have that conviction, then we will boldly, particularly in the hostility of this, you know, we're now facing a secularist theocracy in America that is going to persecute us. We need to have strong convictions, not merely about the truthfulness of the word, but of the sovereign power of God through the word, and that is going to mean church planning, and it's going to mean conferences, it's going to mean books. And so I'm a person who, you know, I mean, people say to me, how'd you get into like being an author and conference speaker? Well, I was with Jim. Oh, okay. I mean, God has sovereignly placed me in a position where I can be a part of something big. And I want to be a part of something big. Hmm. So I'm, I'm doing everything I can while loving and raising my family as well to serve the cause of Christ in this way. You. You have written many books and commentaries and articles, and one of those books that um, I know was a little bit of a surprise to you how much has taken off is the book Masculine Mandate. Mm -hmm. And in that book, um, you um, stress the idea of what biblical manhood is rooted in, where, where it's come from, what, it, what its calling is to, but you're also answering um, kind of a, a misunderstanding of some of the more popular writing on quote-unquote biblical manhood. And I guess the first question I want to ask you in regards to all that is why do you think there are so many issues or so much attention given to today on the issue of manhood? What, what is it in the secular culture that you're seeing that compelled you to write a book? Yeah, I would say two things. One is that the American ideal of manhood is not fully biblical. Uh, it's got some good things about it, but it's not fully biblical. And so if you're watching a John Wayne movie or Die Hard or you know, even worse, MMA and whatnot, and you're picking up a vision of manhood, that is not going to be a very adequately biblical man. And so there's a need, there's a great need for instruction in, among other things, biblical manhood. Um, the other thing is that we, our society is so vastly broken today. I begin the book uh, with, by the way, Ligonier has just issued a paperback version of it, so they would kill me if I did not say this through the new cover. It's just been reissued in paperback. Um, the, um, I, I talk about a guy named Brian Deegan, who is a Moto X, he's the Michael Jordan of Moto X, and he's part of the, you know, kind of the underground, he's covered in tattoos, he's a professional motorcycle bike trick jumper, and... Uh, through a series, he gets a girl pregnant. She's from an evangelical family. She leaves, goes home with her Christian family who has their daughter come back, gotten pregnant by a Moto X guy. Great. But they love her. He then has a horrific accident, and he almost dies. And he has no functional family. This is our society today. It's just complete, you know. And there's no place for him to go. 
the parents of the girl say to the tattooed-covered Moto X guy who got their daughter pregnant, why don't you come live with us, and we'll take care of you. Isn't that great? And uh, he goes to the evangelical church. He gets converted to Christ. Go, heals up, goes back to Moto X, and starts evangelizing. And last time I checked, Brian Diggins got a lot of sanctification yet to do, so I'm not endorsing everything they do. But he goes back, and he marries the girl. He's got the baby. And there's this, now my source on this is sports is ESPN the magazine. I'm, I'm sitting in a barbershop reading this article. And he's, they got a picture of him with this, or they describe him sitting with his daughter on his lap. And Brian Deegan goes, you know, I've come to Jesus Christ. I'm serving Jesus. Now i got to figure out how to be a man. What a statement. And I think that's representative of so much of what's going on. So um, the good news is the Bible is extraordinarily helpful. And the Bible uh, does it not only teaches the doctrine of redemption, but it also instructs us in the redeemed life. And so uh, my other concern was I was so, well, you know, because I'm an Army guy, I start getting asked to do a lot of men's conferences. And so whenever I'm asked to speak on a topic, I always want to say, okay, how does the Bible treat this? And uh, I, I picked up, somebody had given me, actually one of my elders in Florida had given me a leather-bound copy of, John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, <laughs> greatest book, and I read the thing and I'm horrified by just the fundamental unsoundness of the whole thing. But but he makes a comment that I thought was interesting. You know, the, he says in that book, um, uh, Genesis two uh, two fifteen, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And he says, you know, if God put the man in the garden. That means he was not born in the garden. He was born in the wilderness. Therefore, man is wild at heart. You see, you get it? Mm-hmm. He was born in the wilderness. He's wild at heart. Now, he does. my argument is if, if God puts you somewhere and tells you to do something, maybe you should find your identity in the place that he puts you and in the things that he told you to do. Amen. Oh, <laughs> that wouldn't make a bestseller in America. So, you know, Wild at Heart is about all kinds of wilderness quests whereby you essentially abandon your family, live in the wilderness, slay elk and pour their blood over your head and give a primal scream. And that to me, he's always always talking about we're on a quest for authentic manhood. No real man talks that way. Can you imagine Ronald Reagan saying, you know, I'm on a quest to find my manhood? Anyway, I'm actually at dinner with Jerry Bridges, one of the privileges of my life is I, you know, I have friends with you like this. And, and I'm talking about this. And Jerry goes, oh, you think it's, I live in Collins. That's where Eldridge is. It's a cult. It's insane. I said, Jerry, why don't you write a book about this? You're Jerry Bridges. And he said, I don't have time. You write a book and I'll write the forward. So I did. And so I've been, and, and, and it arose out of, I, I started getting asked to speak at a lot of men's events. You know, uh, and I wanted to do it in a biblically faithful way. And then I, so I developed the material. And then, so I wrote a book. And it kind of has, it's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's had some impact. I mean, it hasn't sold a million copies. But I, I do think that for those looking for the Word of God to both shape and bless their masculine identity, I do think Genesis 2.15 is a paradigmatic verse uh, but it's exactly opposite of what Elders taught. We use it here at, in our church because we, we want to help to raise up a future generation of strong elders and churchmen. And one of the things I love about the book is it, it's got such a strong theology 
of 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 manhood of, of masculinity in it it's rooted in scripture you're you're constantly walking us through what what does the bible say as opposed to how i feel which i think so much is written about um and and even you know the wild at heart and, and all that stuff i just thought you nailed it and that's why i really appreciate it and i hope my listeners will take the time to grab a hold of a copy especially now that's in the paperback um a version that's newly been released that, that they can grab a hold of and 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 wrestle through it with their own uh, men's groups, their uh, discipleship. I mean, it's it's a valuable tool. I think you've done the church a real service um, by doing this. And yet, what surprised me in our conversation was you really didn't. You're, you're kind of surprised on how much has taken off. It's a real frustration to me because everywhere I go, I want people to read my theology books. And my, <laughs> you know, and so. And he goes, you know, Pastor Phelps, you've been so blessed me. And I'm like, you know, my book on the atonement, my my uh, John commentary. And it's always the masculine mandate and holding hands and holding hearts. My dating book and my manhood book. Now, but, but what that tells you, though, that, you know, what's going on today is we need also, we need not only high theology, I'm a believer in that. We also need applied theology. And, and I'm very grateful to be used by the Lord to bring biblical light and, you know, I want to speak with authority where God speaks with authority. And I do, but where he does, I do want to speak with authority. And it blesses me to think that there's children who are being trained, as mine have, young boys, into uh, being uh, nurturer protectors. Hmm. You know, when, when a young man says to me, oh, I'm going on a date, I go, look, here's what I, ha- here's what I expect of you. I want you to build her up and keep her safe. You're gonna you you take responsibility for the godliness of this, and I don't really care if you have a good time, although you will have a good time. Uh, you're to work and keep. You're to build her up. She should come away from that uh, that evening with you saying, "Wow, I really feel built up as a Christian woman, and edified." And he kept me safe. I felt one of the my, my son had a young lady say to him once he was he was at an event with her, and she she wrote him and said, uh, "I felt so safe when I was with you." Yeah. Amen. Yeah, you know, so much of my counseling, even as a pastor into churches, to the to the church people, is there's such a confusion of the roles, and of of who's you know what 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 God has called the man to do, what God has called the woman to do, and what that looks like. And I think your book nails that uh, very clearly for the man, and that he is to protect, he he is to guard, and 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 to shepherd well. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, and, I, and even I hope that, uh, you know, I make the argument in the book that I think as evangelicals we have done a good job of embracing the idea of disciplining our children. We spank. We actually, we, 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 you got to do that. I'm not sure we've done a, as good a job of discipling our children. And so you have work and keep. We, we protect them through discipline. That's the keeping, the guarding. But the building up, you know, we need to have a close bonded relationship with our children where we where they learn their Christianity and their manhood or their womanhood as girls by walking side by side with their father or their mother in that case. Uh, You know, my oldest son is going to college and uh, it really is the end of my direct discipleship of him. Obviously, we maintain a relationship, but he leaves my nest. I'm very glad that I very carefully spent, the, particularly from puberty on, I think once they hit puberty, boy, you really got to be close to them and you've got to be guiding them. They need to be reproved and they need to be built up and they need experiences and you've got to walk with them. I'm very grateful that I'm sending him saying, well, we'll see how, I mean, I, I'm confident in the Lord and, and in him 
I, I, I'm still praying, believe me. But I'm glad that uh, he goes there uh, having, and I feel that I've discipled him very closely. Mm-hmm. I know his heart. Uh, his identity is is been shaped through the church and his relationship with his father and his mother too, but particularly the father for boys and the word of God and a sense of personal calling as a Christian. You know, people go, you're talking about an 18 year old. Yeah, I am. You better believe it. But you see, it's the father who does that. Right. I think that that is even in good churches, that will be an exception almost. Well, isn't that because we have this uh, prolonged adolescence that there's not there's not a whole lot of expect uh, expectations on an 18 year old today yet you go back a few generations and uh, my own father fought in world war ii and at 18 there he is um defending his country and advancing uh you know uh advancing freedom and yet today there's this uh expectation that a 20 year old 25 year olds living in mom's basement playing video games and I think we, we've lost something in the church when we're not calling men to be men. And that's, I think, another reason why I'm just excited about your book. Well, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer that adolescence, the, the puberty shift is a huge time, really. Their conscience is formed then. I always say, we have five kids. So I, I say we, we, were in, we used to be on two-on-one, then we went to man-to-man, then we went to zone defense, and then we went to the box-in-one. Uh, the boxing one is a defense where everybody else is in zone, but one of them is getting man-to-man. And the child that's getting man-to-man is usually the child going through puberty. Um, because you've really got to mold their character, and there needs to be reproof and love and affection and, and guidance. Uh, I would say in an analogous way, the period my, my two oldest children are in right now, 18 to 22, they're leaving the home, and they're forming the patterns and disciplines of a young adulthood is vitally important. And uh, I don't know that the average 27-year-old who's playing video games in his parents' basement is ever going to catch up mm-hmm. to an 18-year-old who has a sense of calling about his or her life. And those with their, you know, they're having fun, but they're there with a purpose, and they, they have a sense of stewardship unto God, and they have a relationship with their parents with expectations as well as support you know, and we, we homeschool. One thing I've noticed a lot, a lot more homeschool kids are having gap years after they graduate high school. Now, I don't want to condemn that wholesale because I know there's everybody's got a story. But as a phenomenon, it worries me. So I graduated high school, now I'm going to drift for a year. Um, in some cases, there may be good uses of that. But I'm surprised at how many of them is. They need to be getting after it. They should have a sense. And even if they don't know what their occupational choice is going to be, uh, they should be saying, I'm now entering a phase of, of semi-independent adult manhood and for girls' womanhood, and I need to embrace a godly, purposeful lifestyle. You know, my son's going to a secular campus where, and he's, he, we've already met the Reformed University Fellowship guys, the PCA campus ministers, and I said to him, I expect you to be a servant of that. I, I sent you as a servant leader to that ministry, and part of your purpose at college is to be a part of the campus presence of the Christians, and you will be at the local church. You're not going to drive home an hour to our church. You're going to play. There's good churches there. You're going to plug into them. You're going to be part of those ministries. You're a vitally important Christian. And so, um, yeah, I agree with you. And this whole delayed adolescence, it's it's a tragedy. And our poor girls who need husbands, you know, and 
And there's no guys in so many. Now, many guys get upset when I say that. Well, okay, then get out of your basement, turn off World of Warcraft, turn off Halo, and start working and keeping. Amen. Start pursuing a passionate consecration of your life to Jesus Christ. You're 18 years old. You're 27. Uh, and I, I, don't, I, I don't want to put you down. I want to encourage you. Uh, you have a sovereign God of power and life, and turn to Him. And 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 the place to start is in the church, right? Yeah. The place to start is with regularity of worship, personal devotions, and, and disciplined life. Uh, yeah. If you're a young adult man, you should be pursuing marriage. Ninety-five percent of the time. So and there's lots of godly girls, and you. But stop. You know, Take responsibility. Anyway, I've written a book on this. Oh, but I'll help. <laughs> Two well, books on it. We have our dating book. But yeah, it's a huge deal, Aaron. And we need to look at the young men in our church. I do. I, I look at our church league basketball teams and say, you know, those 10-year-old boys, you know, in 10 years need to be functioning Christians getting after it. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the battle is real. The spiritual battle is real. I know that... Um, you know, we, we both believe in church planting. We want to see planters raised up. But if the church isn't doing its job in discipleship, there is going to be a weakness, not only in churches that are unhealthy, but in other churches being advanced and started. And so this plays into all that. And um, I want to turn the page to someone we're both uh, excited about. And uh, he is a, a man's man, uh, John Payne. You helped plant his church. We had him on uh, not too terribly long ago, and he talked about Christ Church. Um, but I want you to share a little bit of the perspective of an existing church that poured into a church plant. And I think a lot of times we miss that and the vision you had for that church plant. Yeah, thank you. Uh, John is about, uh, he's a uh, PCA minister, about maybe 12 years younger than me. He's probably 43, 44 now. Um, I got to know him a bit. We kind of run in the same circles. I could see he was an outstanding man, and he had some personal connections through my church. Our church administrator had known him at college and kept up with him. He was very close to Harry Reeder. Uh, John is a fascinating guy. He was uh, uh, the captain of the Clemson varsity soccer team, and he was a drunken hooligan guy. And he actually was in a car accident where someone almost died. He would have gone to jail because he was drunk driving. He often tells his story. And in the jail cell, he was raised in a Lutheran church, and he had the Bible in his mind, and he, he surrendered his life to Jesus and begged that the girl would not die so he wouldn't have to go to jail. <laughs> and uh, he became a campus Christian leader and gave that testimony. He was used by the Lord in that kind of drunken college culture to really call out to Christ. Goes to become a professional soccer player and ends up in the ministry. And uh, he, he had been on the professional soccer team in Charleston, South Carolina and had met his wife there, and she's from nearby. And they had long had a passion to go back to that area. And so I'd heard that. Well, meanwhile, our church was interested in, we've been throwing about the idea of planting a, a, a reformed confessional church in Charleston. Uh, we're about three and a half hours away. We're Greenville and Charleston are two of the leading cities of South Carolina. We had people go there, and while there are Presbyterian churches there, there really weren't strong confessional churches. Actually, there's one, one that I would say is pretty good that way. But it was really much more of a progressive, contemporary, theologically lighter type of thing. And so we were constantly hearing from people going to Charleston. We don't know where to go to church. We didn't know where to send them. So we had that in our mind. We'd love to see something happen there. And we wanted it to be downtown. Well, I'm talking to Mel Duncan, my uh, administrator, and he's telling me about John wanting to go to Charleston. And 
I actually ran into John at a conference. And I said, John, I heard that you want to go to Charleston. He goes, oh, we'd love to go there, but I don't see any. He'd interviewed with the church there, but they hated him. You know, <laughs> They didn't want anything like what he represented. And I said, well, why don't we plant a church there? He goes, really? I said, yeah. I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 41. I said, John, it's now or never. You ain't planting a church probably at 51. He was pastoring a church that was growing in the Atlanta area. And I said, look, I'm, I'm in deadly earnest. Uh, you go back to your wife and you pray about this for two weeks and you let me know. If you will do this, we will raise the money and we'll do it first class. And uh, we will plant together a church. I want it to be in downtown Charleston. Um, two weeks later, he called me back and said, we want to do it. So uh, I went to my elders and said, uh, what we would like to do is we would like to lead a consortium of churches who will finance and support this. And so I need $15,000 right now. This is the beauty of being a decent sized church. You can go to your elders and say, give me $15,000. And they say, yes. Um, and so that year, General Assembly, which is three years ago now, maybe four. Wow. We called like-minded churches, mainly larger ones. Uh, and says, we want you to attend a meeting. We've got a guy, John Payne, who they knew, and we want to make a proposal for a church plant. We want your financial support. So we had this a great meeting. I'll never forget it. And John gave just a great vision for it. And, and so he, it's a city he knows. He and his wife have friends there. They have a passion. They, they'd cut their wrists, you know, to be there. They wanted to be there so badly. And people can sense that. We put together a budget of over $200,000 a year that day. Wow. That day. And um, now the one of the, we had a number of challenges we had to overcome. Uh, we were planting a church in another presbytery. That can be a dicey proposition. I mean, if somebody tried to plant a church in our presbytery, we would want them to work through us. So we wanted to do that. And, and that presbytery had a church planter. They had to actually paid a guy to run their church planting, and he was at General Assembly. So John and I go over to see him and introduce him, and the guy says, we don't want you. You're not the kind of people. You'd never succeed as a church plant. Wow. <laughs> well, get ready to face obstacles, right? And I think it's fair to say that that guy was much more interested in a church growth-oriented, contemporary, theology-like, culture-accommodating type of thing, of which we have scads of churches. And, you know, Bible-centered, confessionally reformed, traditional worship guys are his nightmare. And so we just started working through it. We, we got in touch with the, of the, the committee, the, the church planning committee. Actually, for other reasons, that guy actually was dismissed. In the, I, mean, I gotta be honest with you, Aaron. There's 10 providences that were ridiculous. I once said to John, you know, you know how in the Bible, uh, 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 Elisha tells the king, you should have knocked it more times because the Lord, I said, look, the Lord is answering all our prayers. Let's keep asking them. And, um, so we put together a schedule. We, one of the things I said to John was, I will not send you without an assistant. I'm a real believer in that. The Bible does two by two. I think we need to raise a little more money. Uh, this solo church planner thing's really hard. And I think it's not ideal. And so we sent him with an intern who immediately was ordained. So he had a, a pastoral staff on day one. Actually, very shortly, and we got a music director in Charleston, South Carolina. You need quality music. Um, and we actually ended up working the presbytery. There were people who helped us there. But I will tell you, the only reason we were able to do the kind of church we believed in was because we had all our own money. Wow. If we had has to ask for money, 
we would not have gotten away with that. I, mean, I had a one key phone call where kind of the boss elder of that group, the senior minister of a very large church, I called him and he says, you know, we don't want your kind of church. He says, we're not interested. We're not going to give money to that kind of church. We have no confidence in it. I said, well, sir, how convenient that I'm not asking for a cent. We have all our own money. And I tell you right now, we are planting a church in Charleston. You let me know by 5 p.m. if you want it to be in our denomination or not. And it's sad, but you got to be willing to do that. And we said all along, yes, we, we are bringing theological and ministerial convictions, and we are not willing to compromise them. And that was very unpopular. There was, uh, you know, there was uh, a lot. It was really kind of nasty, the, the treatment he got there. And if we didn't have our own money, isn't that sad, but it's the truth. And uh, we, you know, we said, look, there's, uh, there's 600 people in PCA churches in a city of, of 500,000. We're not poaching on anybody's territory. Uh, we need more churches. But you got to fight through that. You know, our denomination, like most denominations, is factionalized, and there's turf wars, and we really weren't trying to fight those. We just wanted to plant a church that represented the convictions that we hold dear in a key city. Well, God has so blessed it. And, and I will say this. John has done such a great job of being a good presbyter. He's, you know, he, he tries to cooperate with people. He tries to... Uh, uh, he's not trying to cause trouble for people with different convictions, even though maybe some of them have caused him trouble. But he's done the work. He's done the work of an evangelist. You know, he's held Bible studies. He's met people. He's held meetings, that, you know, and, and he's preached the word. And they built a sound church. And they, it's been great. Uh, I don't think he could have done it without the network of supportive churches. You know, we raised a lot of money for that. And that was helpful. And it took that pressure off John, and it allowed him to be paid. And you know, his family was not in crisis. He had an assistant. He's got a secretary. He rented a building for him in downtown Charleston. But you know, honestly, he's almost financially. He doesn't want to hear this, because he doesn't want us to stop supporting him. But he's almost <laughs> financially self-supportive now. Um, they got like 300 people. In fact, I was talking to John yesterday on August 28th. We particularized that church. Wow. Um, so we'll maintain our support. Our church, Second Presbyterian Church of Greenville has been the administrative center for the church. So they're on our insurance policy. We the, the money goes through us. We run the bookkeeping. That's been a big help to them. But it requires personal trust, you know. I mean, we say no to John, and like other ministers, he doesn't like it. But, you know, we're friends. And I've said, John, you know, you're a Presbyterian. You got elders, and they're going to say no. He's like, yes, I do. And... Um, so he's got um, so all the administrative support, which has been difficult because we're in a different presbytery. But we worked it out. You know, I think they they realized that we were not trying to cause them problems. And there's good folks there. And it turns out that the head of the church planning committee, the presbytery, has been very helpful. So we have kind of a strange partnership, but it works because of the integrity of everybody involved. So all from our point of view. If you're a church planner, you should be thinking, wow, that would be great. Well, it is great. And it's freed up John to do a, a tremendous job, by which I mean it's a, it's a word sacrament ministry, you know, a word prayer sacrament. And they have morning and evening worship, and they preach the word, and they have Bible studies, and they do pastoral care. And, but there's an integrity about it, and people see that. Now, we also believe that we were going into a city where there were a lot of people who would, who would, who would respond to that. And we have been proved to be right. Um, 
there were a, there were enough people there dying for that kind of church that uh, we did pretty well pretty quickly. We might do it in other cities where it would take longer. In fact, right now we have a meeting at our General Assembly next week of all the churches who supported John. We're looking for our second one. We want to do another one. So uh, we're recruiting a church planner for the same kind of deal. We want it to be in a major city. We're thinking New Orleans. We just had a proposal for Toronto. That'd be interesting. But we want, you know, Aaron, there are whole churches like Detroit, right? I don't, areas near you all, in the Great Lakes, where there's not a strong, reformed, confessional church. Hmm. Well, we need to repopulate them. We had this incredible meeting. Uh, the first organizational meeting that John led, and I was privileged to go there, we met in the Society Hall of Charleston on Meeting Street. That's the main street in downtown old Charleston. And John pointed out the Reformed churches on Meeting Street in 1850 and the strong ministries they had. Old Scotch Presbyterian Church, the Circular Congregational Church, Second Presbyterian Church, uh, Zion Presbyterian Church with Gerardo and that large slave congregation that was growing in the Lord and all these vibrant Reformed churches, he says, now there are none of them. They're all liberal now. Wow. But we, their spiritual offspring, have returned. Hmm. You, it was, it was a, what a great moment that was. What a story, though, of a, of, of a, of a heart that God had given you to see uh, planting done um, within your convictions, and yet, you, you first of all, didn't put your own, own church at risk by trying to do too much. No, you, you, you took the vision of how can we get other churches to partner into this ministry. And yet you also um, encouraged John, who God had been laying equally the desire to, you know, to be a pastor in a particular city you wanted to plant in. And how God orchestrates all that, so encouraging, and yet you had to still work through the hurdles of... Uh, presbytery conflicts and personality conflicts and territory wars and all those things that every church plan experiences. Three years, you know, we've had a big church discipline case there. Yeah, but, you know, it's been a it's been a wonderful. I, mean, I don't think we can always count on that level of confluence of of factors. Uh, John was a mature, first-rate minister who could really bring it. The factor is that hmm. what we need are godly, mature men. Who, who are not trying to figure themselves out or their ministry out, but who have convictions and who believe in the power of the word and who are committed to reform theology, um, we will support them. And, it, and, and churches, you know, we're in, mainly in the southeast and the mid-south, although we're willing to go anywhere, really. It's kind of easier for us to do it regionally because you have personal contacts. I mean, when I was calling that guy in John's Presbytery, it was a guy an hour down the road in Columbia, South Carolina. We're calling from Greenville, South Carolina. I think it would have been more threatening if we were calling from New York City, you know? Sure. So there's kind of a, the, the closer you are regionally, the easier it is. But I, I want to say to established churches who maybe, you know, the, the cost to my church financially for this church plant has been $15,000 a year. We've gotten a lot of bang for our buck. And, and we got other churches. Yeah, we had one church that got an inheritance, and they committed $100,000 to it. You know, and we can usually, if you have strong churches, uh, we can raise the money. And we need to raise the money. And, uh, but the, the dynamic, we can't just manufacture. 
are strong, able, gifted men of conviction and and passion. Boy, that's those guys are, are golden. And we need to guys like that, but we also need to then do strategic works. You know, we really are we're looking for downtowns. We're we're hoping to plant regional hub churches in downtown areas. You know, Tenth Press was a regional hub church, hmm. and when you know Henry or uh, Ashbel Green has accomplished, he accomplished a lot in 1829 when he raised the money and they planted that church and bought a building. We want to create strategic. We want to plant strategic reform churches. Now, there's nothing wrong with rural churches and that kind of thing. But, you know, Aaron, there's whole cities where I don't know where to send you to church. Right, right. I, I don't have a single recommendation uh, of, of a sound, uh, Bible-centered, even Reformed Baptist or PCA or Reformed Church. I don't know where you go to church. Hmm. We need to repopulate those places. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Phillips, I have just been uh, so privileged to spend, well, spend the time that you've given us today, and uh, thank you for all of your work, everything from writing to preaching, uh, your involvement uh, with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, it's It's been an encouragement to me, and uh, I hope to my listeners, and uh, just again, thank you for your time. Well, let's touch base from time to time. If I can be a service to your all's work, I'd be happy to come or uh, be interested in, in your church planning. It was great. You know, I met those guys actually planting churches in Detroit. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Michigan man. So let's plant That's one right. in our. <laughs> Amen. Uh, Harbaugh, Harbaugh <laughs> Memorial Presbyterian Church. There you go. Downtown <laughs> Ann Arbor. So, uh, anyway, it's, Aaron, it's been a privilege. God bless you and what you're doing. Well, have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.